Hey guys, this is Pastor Zach, and you are listening to Sermon Notes here at HPC. Good. Okay, turn with me to the book of Ruth. We're going to be in Ruth chapter 3 today. And I love, I love the story of Ruth. And we're just going to look through one window into this house. We're going to see one room of Ruth's house. Uh, and so, so I want you to know the context of this story is really important. And I would encourage you, this is a short read. Go home and read it again and just let the Lord, after you sit through this message, let the Lord wash over you with fresh revelation and fresh insight from this word. But um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just narrow down into one focus. I will also say that um, Bishop Jakes, Bishop T.D. Jakes, preached a phenomenal message on Ruth from like a 100,000-foot view and talks about these three different seasons of, of her life. And uh, today, well, that message is so anointed. And sometimes when, when a pastor preaches like a phenomenal message, sometimes you're kind of like, mm, should I really ever preach on that after that? Or should I just tell people like, I'm not gonna preach on Ruth, just go, go listen to Bishop Jakes' message. But I will say that I feel like the Lord has something fresh for us today. We're gonna hone in and get specific on one little section here. Uh, and that is Ruth at the threshing floor. Okay, so chapter three, and if you are totally unfamiliar with the story, I'm gonna give you like a 20-second highlight recap. Remember like when you're watching a show and it's like, last time on Ruth. (laughs) So that's what I'm gonna say, and it's just gonna be the highlights, okay? So Ruth was not an Israelite. Ruth was not of the Hebrew people. She was a Moabitess. She was of Moab, of the Moabites. And so Ruth marries a Hebrew young man, and another young woman married this man's brother. And so they went to Israel uh, to to live among the Hebrew people, and uh, these young men had a mother. Her name was Naomi, and she was a widow. Tragically, both these young men die And now this family is made up of three widows. Naomi, not wanting to drag these poor young women into the hopelessness of her situation, sends them both back to the land from where they came. And while one of the young women does return, which, by the way, it was sort of just common, uh, sort of like a standard operating procedure, If, if a tragedy like this befell you, as a widow without kids, you would go back to your native people um, where you would be supported by your, your family. And so what was uncommon, though, was Ruth. Ruth said, no, I'm going to stay with you. Your people are going to be my people. I'm going to go where you go. I'm going to do what you do. Naomi tried to get her to, to make the wiser decision and go back, but no, she stays And so now, instead of one widow's mouth to feed, it was two. And so Ruth went to work doing what what most impoverished people did in that day. And in order to stay alive, they would do something called gleaning the fields. Now, part of the Mosaic law was that if you were a farmer... And, and as you would take your plow and your oxen or as you would uh, start your harvesting patterns, that if your, if your field had sharp like 90 degree corners on the edges of your property, you would, not, you would not harvest all the way into those corners. You would cut the corner like an arch and you would leave that corner unharvested for the purpose of provision for the poor. 
Isn't it cool how the Lord was like conscious of that, even just taking care of the sparrows and the, you know? And, and if you're in here this morning and you feel like God isn't thinking about your situation, I want you to know it shows up long before Jesus, okay? It shows up long before the Gospels. The Lord is, is concerned for you. He cares for you. He loves you. And he's already put a plan into place to provide for you. Amen? And so these farmers would leave the corners of their fields. And, and uh, in addition to their laborers, their workers out there working, you would see the folks coming out from the town where they would beg in the town to live. They would come out. They'd have the opportunity to glean from those corners. Now, we're picking up right there in verse 23 of actually chapter 2. So the last verse of the preceding chapter says, So Ruth worked alongside the women in Boaz's fields and gathered grain with them until the end of the barley harvest. Who was Boaz? Boaz was a close relative of her mother-in-law. And Naomi would have known Boaz and would have known, well, he's a, he's a kind guy. He's a gentle guy. And so, you know, whereas some of these landowners, they might not treat the gleaners very well because of who they were in the, in the social system. Uh, but she knew that Boaz would, would look out for this young woman. So it says that she went to Boaz's fields and gathered grain with them until the end of the barley harvest. Then she continued working with them through the wheat harvest in early summer. And all the while, she lived with her mother-in-law. Everybody say, thank God for mother-in-laws. Thank you, Jesus. In this story, in this story, Naomi represents commitment. All right? I want you to get that. And as you go back and read through Ruth, personify commitment through the character of Naomi. All right? Now, not because Naomi herself was so committed. We know that Ruth in the story is the one who's committed. But Naomi represents the fruitfulness of that commitment. How many of you know that sometimes when you take on a commitment, it feels like more of a drain on you, more work for you than it does whatever it has to provide for you, right? Has anybody been in church more than five minutes? Okay. You know how commitments work, or maybe you don't. But Naomi represents commitment and loyalty and steadfastness. These things are attributes of God, but are uh, very uncommon among people. Chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Naomi said to Ruth, my daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you will be provided for. Notice, she doesn't say, I found a permanent home for us. She, she, she's willing to accept her lot in life, but to make sure that the legacy that her sons were to carry out can still be passed on. The time has come for me to find a permanent home for you so that you will be provided for. Verse two says, Boaz is a close relative of ours and he's been very kind by letting you gather grain with his young women. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Now do as I tell you, take a bath and put on perfume and dress in your nicest clothes. Then go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he has finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down there. He will tell you what to do. It's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting. 
Naomi prescribes a plan for Ruth, and, it, and it, it doesn't begin at the threshing floor. It begins gleaning the fields. But it's important to understand that this commitment, this loyalty, this steadfastness, while, while a whole season goes by of sweat and work and dirt, not just to keep herself alive, but to keep Naomi alive as well. It's important to understand that Ruth's commitment to Naomi kept her, number one, in Israel, two, kept her fed, and three, introduced her to Boaz. If you're writing things down, I want us to get this this morning. Commitment connects us to provision, promotion, and providence. Commitment connects us to provision in the fields, promotion at the threshing floor, and providence at the city gate. We're not going to get into that part of the story right now. I'll give you the spoiler alert um, at the end. But the, uh, the point is, is that today many believers are crying out to God for provision or promotion or providence in the sense of destiny, in the sense of calling, in the sense of assignment. And we wonder where these things are. But do not miss this incredibly important lesson the Lord teaches us in this book, that it is commitment, commitment that connects us to these things. Well, I just need God to do a miracle. You know what the greater miracle is? For someone made of flesh to step out of that flesh into the spirit and commit to something and become loyal to something, become steadfast in something. I heard, this, um, I heard this story about a man who was, uh, who was a, a subway station janitor. And he began as, as a kid right out of school. He started cleaning these subway stations. And if anybody's ever been in a subway station, they're just, well, you know. The only thing worse is probably a church bathroom. That's really probably the only thing I could think that's even more disgusting. But it's, it's, it's just a disgusting job. And as the man puts in the years and the decades go by and more decades go by and he, and he grows to the point where he can't do this anymore. And there were some young people talking to him and, uh, and, and some young people like millennial age people. Asking, hey, you know, how is it that you've given your whole life to this job? Like, wouldn't you have rather given your life to something important? And the man said, I didn't give my life to it because it was important. It's important because I gave my life to it. He was committed. And his commitment brought him provision. His commitment brought him promotion. His commitment brought him providence. And he found a way to lead his family, to provide for, for to be an incredible part of his community, not because he gave his life to something that the world might look at as unimportant, but because he created significance around that calling by giving his life to it. 
And I think sometimes we live in this place where we're constantly, we waste half our lives looking for something important to do. Looking for promotion. Looking for opportunity. When the Lord says, nothing is ever important until your life is poured out for it. We were not important until Jesus died for us. I know somebody doesn't want to hear that today. But commitment connects us to provision, promotion, and providence. I mean, you can't see it any more clearly than in the church where Ashley and I, we sit down with so many people, and it's usually one of these three things. Something, somewhere there's a need that needs to be provided for. Somewhere there's a, a, a want for promotion to move up. Why can't I lead a group? Why can't I uh, be a ministry leader? Why, why am I not doing this yet? Why can't I do that yet? Or destiny, providence. That's what providence is. It's God's divine destiny ordered for us. And we can't get our head around it. And in truth, it's because we've never dropped anchor. We've never, we've never said, you know what? I feel like this is where the Lord wants me. And it doesn't seem very important right now, but I don't care. And then watch as the Lord starts to unfold these things in our lives. Amen? Good. Okay, provision, promotion, and providence, all through commitment. Now, she says, it's time to get you a man. Take a bath. Wash yourself. Show me what you're working on. You're laughing, but that's not far from what's going down, okay? That's not far from it. I wish I, could, I wish I could make this a little more appropriate, and I'm going to leave out some of what a lot of historians and commentators and theologians getting into. I mean, there are, there's a lot of language here that we're going to keep it PG-15, okay? <laughs> but the first thing she says is take a bath. Now, it would be easy for me. I'm Mr. Metaphor. I can go all day on metaphors, and I can say, well, you know, part of moving out of one season and into the next, part of moving from just relying on provision to stepping into promotion requires, you know, sin to be washed off. we got to go through the cleansing blood of Jesus. But at the end of the day, this was not to take a bath to be clean from unrighteousness. This was just about washing off the work. Washing off the work. You see, the last season that Ruth's coming out of, it wasn't bad. It just required sweat and dirt and heat. It required filth under your fingernails. It required a deep clean. And I think, um, I think just for us, if we need something to take home today, saints, it's so important that we wash off the last season in preparation for the next. Okay? that we wash off the last season in preparation for the next. In this part of the world, um, you know, at this time of year, she's working through the summer. This is, this is just not a pretty picture when you come home from a day of work. And then you wouldn't bother getting real wicked clean because you're going to get up before the sun and go out and do it again. As I, as I read through that verse 23 of, the, of chapter 2, I felt like the Lord draw me in deep on these two harvests, the barley and the wheat. And I don't know if it's for anybody in here. It might have just been the first service. But I feel like there, is a, feel like there was just some weight on this that I don't want to miss. It's too good. 
So here's the thing about barley and wheat. They were sown, planted at the same time. But barley matures faster. It thrives in harsher conditions and it matures much quicker. So the first pass, this first harvest would be barley. The first grain produce that was yielded would be barley. When the barley was done, we would see this other thing come up and this is the wheat. Now wheat requires a lot more rain. It's a lot more finicky. It it will not thrive as well in a harsh environment. It matures slowly, but it yields a much more refinable product. And you can do things in the kitchen with wheat that you cannot do with barley. And saints, I, as I was praying about this, I'm like, Lord, is, is somebody in here opening a brewery or something? Like, what, what do we need to, is there something in here for somebody? And I felt the Lord say, this, and I, this is something I heard years ago, and uh, that when we first come to the Lord, we will go through a barley season where there is a, a quick maturing. Things that, things that should take years and decades take months. In fact, if uh, you're a student of uh, church statistics, you might like this or you might hate it, but it's, it's numbers, uh, that the average Christian learns all the theology they're ever going to learn in the first six months of their faith. That's crazy. But think about it. You get saved. You take the new believers class. You listen really intently to a few months worth of sermons a couple of mentors or spiritual fathers or mothers speak into your life and you get to know who this God is. And then you kind of just transition into this other phase, this sort of you're climbing, climbing, and you hit this plateau. And it's kind of like at that point, you just kind of coast. Like, okay, I know about God. I know God. I got saved. I worship him. I go to church. I do whatever. But what's really happening is the Lord's calling us out of the barley season and into the wheat season where maturity happens a lot slower and and requires a different sort of environment, requires sitting under rain, under open heavens and saturating in everything the Lord pours out. And as months go by and now years go by, it's the exact opposite. What you think should happen in a matter of months takes decades. And a lot of seasoned believers get caught up on this, this uh, looking back at the, the, the glory of the former temple and saying, man, remember how that barley shot up out of the ground. Shut up, shut up. Remember the good old days? They used to play that pipe organ and all oh, heaven came down. And it was crazy. Standing room only all over that house. A barley. You want to know what's crazy? When we can't get our eyes off the barley harvest, we miss the more refined thing. See, the Lord just wants you to sit under the rain. He just wants you to sit out there. The barley harvest is awesome. And guess what? You can live off barley. 
but you're not going to get those refined, incredible pastries. <laughs> you're not going to get those Pop-Tarts <laughs> from barley. And so I, I want to encourage you, especially that I know Ron had an awesome word uh, about a month ago, and he shared it up here for, for folks who've been walking with the Lord for a long time, and, and it just feels like, like the best is over. It feels like you can point backward and say, you know, you look at a season of quick maturity. And, and what you want to do is you want to, to impose what happened to you on an era of your past and say, that's what God was doing then. Why can't we see it now? And in truth, God's still doing that in somebody else's life. Somebody else is shooting up quickly in spite of their conditions, in spite of their environment. And, and God's doing incredible things through it. But what he wants to do in you is refinement. You're a fire, a refiner. I want to be consumed. Truth is, nobody wants to be consumed. Nobody wants to take that long. We'll settle for the flash in the pan instead of for the long haul. Saints, we're in this for the long game. Amen? Amen. Good. Okay, so those are the two harvests. So she says, take a bath to wash off the last season in preparation for the next. And then she says, anoint yourself. Now, if you have a a children's Bible, like I'm reading from this morning, a New Living Translation... If you have a watered-down sort of uh, liberal's Bible, I'm just kidding. It's not liberal. It's just I'm still wrestling with it. And it's weird because all the pictures on every other page throw me off. (laughs) But it feels good. It feels good in my spirit. Okay. I just want you to get this. Anoint yourself, okay? Take a bath anoint yourself. That's, that's what the, the, the word means there. Now, that same word would be used of perfume for someone who's just maybe, you know, getting gussied up to go out on a date. But the word also would be used when a prophet or a man of God would come with a flask of oil like he, Samuel did for David and anoint Showing, representing the selection of the Holy Spirit. And I want to talk about this perfume for just a second because whether naturally or spiritually, the same thing is happening. A selection is made for a specific purpose. A selection is made for a specific purpose. You've got that cologne that you spray on for certain occasions. You've got that that thing that marks, hey, I'm going to spend some time with my spouse. And I know he likes whatever. And so you spray that on to set yourself apart, to, set, to make this night a little different, something more special than the average night. And the same thing is true for the anointing. Now, sometimes words like the anointing in a mixed crowd where we've got some Reformed people, we've got some Pentecostal people, we've got some, you know, some Christians and some atheists and that sort of thing in here. And a word like anointing, people start to get wonky because they're like, hmm. What is that about? Anointing. 
That sounds like some spiritual guru stuff. It's not, so don't get weird, okay? It's literally the, the markation from the Holy Spirit on a person to designate them for a specific purpose. That was it all the way through the Old Testament. And then you show up in Acts chapter 2 and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And suddenly, all flesh is anointed. Suddenly, the Holy Spirit, we're, we're, we're all eligible to receive the anointing of the Holy Spirit. You know why? Because we're all being marked for a specific purpose. The exact same reason. But now because of Jesus... And his righteousness, because of the cross, we're covered in that. And now we're eligible to receive that same anointing. So it's not weird, okay? It's not weird. It's good. We need it. Lord, mark us. Spiritually, it's a selection for a purpose when it's done by God. Naturally, it's a selection for a purpose when it's done by us. But either way, saints, there is a partnership and a participation that happens When we anoint ourselves, when we agree, come into agreement with the Spirit's anointing on us. Now, Ruth's destiny was already written in heaven, but she had the choice of whether or not she would anoint herself for the same purpose God was anointing her for. And I can't can't stress this enough. And if you're writing things down, tattoo this one on your chest. We can't expect the anointing We can't expect the Lord's anointing if we're not ready to anoint ourselves. We can't expect the Lord to anoint us if we're not ready to anoint ourselves. Well, Zach, won't God work in spite of me? Yeah, he will. He'll anoint you and you'll miss it because you're so caught up in who you used to be. You're so lost in guilt and shame. Why do you think we spend so much time preaching against this, singing against this, declaring and prophesying the freedom of the Lord from all of this bondage? Not because God can't love you in spite of it. This isn't about the love of God. This is about moving from provision to promotion to providence. Was that you clapping, Tony? My guy. I love it. I'm taking you on the road. He's that guy in there who's like. Everybody needs one of those. Every pastor does. We can't expect the Lord's anointing if we're not ready to anoint ourselves. I see it on people all the time. That's one of the hazards of walking in the apostolic ministry is that, is that I look at people and like all I can see is what God wants to do with them. And Ashley and I, we were just in a meeting not that long ago. And it was a, it was a confrontational meeting. It was tough. But as I'm sitting there after like maybe, I don't know, 20 minutes or five hours. I don't even know how long it was. It felt like a while. And I felt this thing rise up inside of me. And I'm like, I took this right hand turn and just started calling out the destiny on this, on this young family. And, and we, we left there later and we we're like, I don't, I don't even know if that worked. You know why? Not because none of those things weren't true, but because we have to be ready to anoint ourselves. We have to be willing to accept his selection and his purpose on our lives. You know it better than anybody in this room. You know it. Anoint yourself. And then finally, she says, put on your best clothes. Now, some translations 
this idea of like the best clothes, um, there's some eh, differing ideas of how to interpret that. We don't really see, you know, there's nothing in there that says like put on your formal wear or put on your evening gown or put on your anything like that. The idea is that part of this process is that Ruth needed to set herself apart with how she dressed. In the same way that she took a bath to wash off the dirt of the next season, in the same way she put on a fragrance that would smell like the next season, okay? So we've got the last season, the next season. Now she's getting ready to get dressed. And the deal with getting dressed is this. She had been wearing not just dirty clothes because she was out in the fields. She had been dressing like a widow, She had spent an entire season clothed with death. You've heard me preach in here. If you've been here for four and a half years, you've heard me preach on widows speak and how there's a language, there's a death language that the enemy wants us to keep speaking based on what we've lost based on hopelessness, based on depravity, based on, on, on all the things that have been taken. And here's the crazy thing. Sometimes our language will start to change because from the heart, the mouth speaks. And as the father regenerates the heart, we'll find ourselves starting to talk like, like we've been changed. But we go back to the same wardrobe, back to the same closet, and we put on ourselves something that does not look like that providence he's calling us into. It looks like where we came from. In the natural, there's this saying, if you have any sort of architectural or design background, you'll know that they say form follows function. And um, that's, a, that's kind of just a principle to go off um, in reference to how you would design a building or how you would, how you would um, engineer something based on, first and foremost, its function. What purpose does it serve? Okay, now, based on that purpose, we're going to build the form to match that. So form follows function, but saints, in the natural, form may follow function, but in the supernatural, it's the other way around. Function follows form. See, your best clothes are more formal, right? But if you've ever gotten dressed up in a really nice outfit and then you went to a wedding and tried to dance in the reception, you're like, man, I wish I was wearing my joggers right now. (laughs) You know? You dress up, you've got your tuxedo on or you've got your dress or you've got whatever and you're like, I can't move in this like I can in my club clothes, you know? (laughs) Esther, you know what I'm talking about. You know, I probably shouldn't be moving like that in those club clothes, but end of day, here's the deal. When it comes to the things of the Lord, our function will be transformed by the prophetic action of our form. And so for Ruth to put on, to take off the widow clothes, to take off the black or the mourning or the whatever it was that marked her as someone who was assigned by death. To put on something else says, I'm ready for something else. I don't want my function anymore to be a widow. I want my function to be a bride. 
And, and for some of us in here, you know, you can take this on whatever level you want. If you're not ready to do the deep dive, I want to ask you this morning, what, what are you clothing yourself in? Does it pull you backward into a ditch or forward into your destiny? What are you putting on? Now, listen, I'm the last guy in the world to say, you need to wear a suit and a tie in church. You got to put on your best for the Lord. I'm not that guy. I preached in a t-shirt last week. Jay, Jay and Jackie Kimball are here somewhere. I don't know where they are, but... Oh, they came to first service. And he was... <laughs> they, they came one other time, and I, and I wore a Pop-Tarts hoodie sweatshirt to preach in. And, you know, it's just... It's funny, because we all came from a different kind of background than that. And uh, so we had a good joke about it this morning. But I'm the last guy to tell you you need to get dressed up for church. But I will tell you this. Function follows your form. Function follows your form. That's why King's Academy has uniforms. Because even statistically, it's proven that a class full of uniformed children score drastically better on their tests. They take, they take their education more seriously than kids who wear pajamas to school. I remember Randy Pardini was telling me about a guy who um, he used to be a, a New York stock exchange trader and uh, at some point transitioned in his career and began to work out of a home office. Nobody saw him. He woke up in the morning and sat in front of computer screens all day. And you know what? Every day the man woke up and put on a suit and a tie, dry cleaned, pressed to the nines to sit in front of a computer screen where nobody saw him. Why? Because what we clothe ourselves in pulls us towards our destiny. Some of you guys, you're saved, redeemed, bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, paid for, and you know you're going to heaven and every day you still get up and dress like a hooker. Why? Why? Because it's what we know. Well, this fits. This fits. It's comfortable. It's warm. And so we're still dressing like somebody who, who, because of death in their life, because of tragedy, because of loss, because of, 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 of woundedness, we'll still put that outfit on regardless and pull ourselves backwards into a ditch. What are we clothing ourselves in? You know, I'm a worship guy. And the mountain I die on is, it's not suits and ties. It's garments of praise. It's garments of praise. And that's why on a day like today, it's like, hey, it's not about how we feel. On a day like any day, it's not about how we feel. We are clothed, the Bible tells us, in two things. The blood of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and garments of praise. And they go together. They work together like an outfit. So what else are we putting on that pulls us back? For some of you, there are literally things in your closet. There's a section. There's a drawer in your dresser. And you pull it out. And the enemy washes over you with with memories and fears and things from your past. Familiar spirits. That the Lord is saying, get rid of it. 
that's not you. That's the widow you used to be until a groom came along. If that's you in this place, there's a goodwill down the street. You know what I'm saying? And depending on what's in that drawer, there's a fire pit in your backyard. Send it back to hell. All right. So let's just end this here, okay? Because I just, I'm going to say something I regret. (laughs) Happens without fail. Like every, our legal team came to me between services. They were like, Zach, you can't say in service. So fortunately, this is the one that goes on TV. I'm just going to tell you this before I let you go. She takes Naomi's advice. She takes a bath. She anoints herself, and she gets dressed. But there was one more direction. Go down to the threshing floor. But don't let Boaz see you until he has finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down. What? I just got pretty. What do you mean, don't let him see me? I thought the whole point of this was that I'm supposed to go and, like, be seen. You're telling me I can't even talk to the man till all the lights and lamps have been put out and it's pitch black? But what about all this? Go and wait. Go and wait. You see, Boaz, Boaz was a wealthy man, a wealthy landowner. And... The vast majority of the year, a person in his position would never be out in those fields. He would never be out doing that kind of work or whatever. But during harvest season, we'd see these landowners come out. Now, some historians say that it had to do with vandals and looters, thieves who would come. They knew that it was harvest season and they would come out and, uh, and they would try to steal from the pile that was being created by the threshing. But I'm thinking that somebody like Boaz could have just hired an army to protect his stuff. You know what I think? I think Boaz loved the harvest because it gave him an opportunity to be reminded about what it's all about. It was a chance for him to go out. He had the nicest bed, nicest sleep number mattress all tuned in. But he looked forward all year to leave the comfort of that mattress and go sleep on the floor with the cool breezes blowing that chaff away and to fall asleep with the smell of barley and wheat in his nose. It connected him back. And I think that there's probably business owners and entrepreneurs in here. And and I bet you sneak opportunities to get out from behind the desk, to get out from behind the computer screen, to stop checking emails, to go out, pick up a hammer, pick up a screw gun. You still love it. It still connects you to the call. It connects you to, to, to what God's been doing from before the providence, before the promotion, back when it was just about staying alive. So Boaz is out there and he's working. He's managing people. He's leading people. He's making decisions. It can all run without him. He's kind of kidding himself, thinking they need him out there, you know? But he's out there, and he's, 
you know, telling people what to do and they're all honoring him and jumping at his beck and call. He's working. But there came a point when he would rest. And saints, what I've been sensing is that the Lord, he's looking for a bride who doesn't just want him for the work he does. A bride who wants to just rest with him. A bride who's not, while he's in the middle of it, look at me, look at me over here. Look at my new stuff. Look what I put on for you. Look how I got dressed. We know the Lord's at work and not because, you know, he's got a toil and strife. We see the father and the son in their Sabbath on the throne, but the spirit of God is working, saints. The spirit of God is moving. The spirit of God is stirring up things in people's hearts and, and, and the signs and wonders are following it and, and crazy, incredible things are happening and heaven is coming. And I wish that as, as exciting as that is to us, I wish that there was, there was a Ruth spirit in us that would say, you know what? Yeah. I've been provided for. Yes, you've answered prayers. Yes, you have made sure that, that I would be fed and that, that I would be taken care of. But more important than that, I want to find you where you're resting. Take note of where he rests. Take note of the fact that when Jesus came up out of the water, the dove lighted upon him. If you know anything about doves, they won't land where there's chaos. They won't land where there's dysfunction. They will only land where there's peace. Go and notice where he rests. If you were here on Mother's Day, we talked about how mothers speak to the peace instead of to the chaos. And we all want the Lord to address our chaos. We log hours at altars pleading for the Lord to come and speak to our chaos. But you want to know where the real power is? And we see it. Ruth becomes it. You want to know where the real power is? It's where he rests. And as this woman goes and receives his covering in the middle of the night, as he takes his covering and brings it over her. And by the way, if you were here on Tuesday, Jiva, is Jiva here? She's in Hits Kids. Okay, she was here for a service. She came down and shared a word about Ruth versus uh, the woman with the issue of the blood and how, and how the Lord is calling the bride away from just, just the requirement of touching the hem of his garment to yeah. being covered by his garment. Oh, it was so good. You can't recreate that, not even Bishop Jakes. But, um, but I, I want to just close in saying that finding where he rests is key to finding that covering. Would you stand with me? I'm fit for robes of white. And King's Academy, on uh, Friday, they had their last chapel before the break. And... Um, Somehow, uh, Frank Lucas trusted me to do the chapel service. I don't know how, but he did. And um, we talked out of Psalm 131 about how David says, I quiet myself 
I calm myself. I'm not going to concern myself with matters that are too great for me, with things that I can't change. You see, Ruth was powerless to change her own destiny. Ruth was powerless to, pro- to even provide for herself if it wasn't for someone who would leave the corners of their field for her. Ruth was powerless to move from a, a, an impoverished widow to the bride of a wealthy man. But the Lord had already set this plan into motion. What she needed to do was wash herself. Wash off the last season to anoint herself in preparation for the next and to cover herself. See, before before she could show up, before the covering of Boaz was laid over her, she changed how she covered herself. Lord, I pray that you would find in us a people who take notice of where you're resting. Lord, that our faith is so much bigger than just what can you do for us today, that it's so far beyond just how can you answer our prayers or how can you check the boxes off our agenda. Lord, I pray that we would take great care to prepare ourselves to be in your presence. Lord, and that our number one concern and that which we take the greatest note of is not where you're doing miracles, not where you're performing signs and wonders, not where you're healing people and raising the dead, but Lord, where you rest. I thank you that your spirit is moving in places of chaos and disorder, but Lord, find in us a heart that searches you out in peace, in rest. May we be that bride by your side under your covering. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Pastor Zach, and you've been listening to HPC Sermon Notes. Love you guys. God bless you, and have the best day of your life.